Welcome to the Sober by Design podcast, where we explore the many pathways to recovery and a better life through conversations with a wide array of guests. Whether you're sober curious, in recovery, or simply looking to improve your mental health and well-being, this podcast will have something for you. Each week, we sit down with inspiring guests from all walks of life who share their personal stories of struggle and triumph, offering valuable insights and practical advice on how to design a life worth living. From addiction and mental health to spirituality and creativity, we cover a wide range of topics that are relevant to anyone seeking to live a more fulfilling and authentic life. So join us on this journey of discovery, growth, and transformation, and start designing a new life. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Sober by Design podcast. We are now in 2024, and this is the first episode of the year. Um, Right now, I'm recording an introduction for an episode. Um, I had another technical glitch where the episode I was recording with the the guest for today um, cut off. So the first four to six minutes of this episode were lost in the um, technology sphere. I don't know exactly what happened, but they're gone. And um, I'm going to try to fill you in on on what the guest had to say early on, but there is still a ton of information and interesting tidbits in this episode. So please do hang on and listen. Today's guest is Jessica Jordan. Jessica is a sex and porn recovery specialist. Um, I was really excited to have Jessica on because from her bio, I could tell her story was interesting and it did not disappoint. The episode was great. And what we talked about was great. We're going to be jumping in as Jessica is kind of getting us into her adult life, I would say. Um, but she did give us a background early, early in her life. Jessica was born in Illinois um, and she was part of a Jehovah's Witness family. Um, and really, you know, this shaped a lot of her early life. It was interesting when I talked to her, um, I had asked her the question of like early life and and she had said, you know, she doesn't really talk about that portion of her life much anymore. So it was a little bit different for her and, um, you know, just kind of delving back into some of the trauma that she had around the, uh, the upbringing in this religious way some of the struggles and and sort of the battles that she she saw going on in her house between her folks um her her uh, mom and and dad did not see eye to eye on on the religious aspect of their household so i think that caused some tension for her and then she felt like an outcast in school because you know when when you're bringing a child up in that jehovah's witness world they're not really partaking in all of the activities that some kids are, so no birthdays, and, you know, they'd be celebrating birthday in class, and Jessica would have to kind of say no. Um, you know, some other things that she did talk about early on were, were, you know, related to this, were that, you know, towards the end, she did manage to break free of, of the Jehovah's Witness, um, you know, religion, and that was a big part of her life and her dad and mom did get divorced. And, you know, I think that this sort of set a new course for Jessica and she would tend to agree here um, because it did, it did shift things. And so when we pick up this episode, Jessica is going to be talking a little bit about 
you know, her life after Illinois and where she went after high school. So that's the pickup. Again, Jessica Jordan, um, sex and porn recovery specialist. Please do hang on and listen to the full episode. And she has a website. If ever, anybody wants to go check it, she is not on social media. And you'll kind of understand why as you start to listen to this. Um, but she is at selfcraftedking.com. Jessica Jordan. 2005, I went to go move to California uh, with my first boyfriend <laughs> that we uh, had met in high school. Um, and so, so that was a whole nother chapter. And there was, you know, did outdoor education with kids and all sorts of things as what I did. And um, kind of fast forwarding through um, different jobs, go, eventually going to get my wildlife biology degree at Humboldt State University, multiple romantic relationships, um, all sorts of things like that. And then I landed myself a position as a an owl hooter where I would go and hike in the forest and hoot for owls. Okay. That and, is a very uh, Humboldt County kind of job, I guess, or yes. Pacific Northwest. I don't know. I've never heard yeah. of that. Um, there's a lot of owl hooters in the area. Really? The, well, the um, the timber harvest companies legally have to hire owl hooters for the northern spotted owl to help to prevent uh, the decline of their population since they're at risk of potential extinction. And it it's not, you know, they, they nest in the old growth trees, the old growth redwoods, the old growth dug firs, um, but they actually for, um, forage or they, they hunt in very young forest stands, like 30-year-old forest stands is where their food is, but their nesting locations is in the old growth. And there's only about uh, less than 5% of the old growth redwoods left. The mm -hmm. rest have been har harvested. So lots of areas for them to hunt, not as many areas for them to um, nest. Okay. Although um, there's enough areas for them to nest as far as like the old growth trees for them to not go extinct. It's actually an invasive species from the east that has made their way here that is actually threatening their extinction. So anyway, um, <laughs> these companies are legally hire, uh, legally um, obligated to hire people who like what I was doing to go out and collect data on these wildlife species. So I would um, hoot and <laughs> find their nest trees. Okay. And then their nest tree would be protected and a thousand foot radius around it for a six month period of the year so that they can raise their chicks, essentially. Um, and then I got brain damage from a naturally occurring seafood. Um, seafood. It was um, Ciguatera neurotoxin. And it looks like you're about to say something. No, I this part. I read this part and I wanted to yeah. I wanted to talk more, but I want to just reset for a second. So. Okay. You grew up, you had all this sort of, you were, you didn't feel like you were in place because I feel like we skipped a little bit, but maybe I could go back. Um, I kind of went fast over uh, a lot of it. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> so we had the Jehovah's Witness part. Your parents yeah. got divorced sometime uh -huh. after you were about a junior in high school, senior in high school, right? So like you were it's still in Illinois at that point and your folks were together, but then your dad moved out you went with your father yeah okay. yeah which was about a half hour 20 20 minutes away maybe 
Okay, so but you finished up high school in Illinois, then you went out to Humboldt for college. Oh, I guess I skipped a part. I went when I said I went to California, which yes, I'm in California still now. I spent six years in Southern California, and oh. that's where I moved to first. Okay, and that's where I did um, outdoor ed for four of those years. Um, I just worked at a gym at first, and then on my lunch break, grabbed the newspaper. See who's hiring. Ended okay. up doing outdoor ed. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that's like, is outdoor ed, is that like uh, like teaching youth or what is that? I don't know. That is. Yeah. yeah. So we would take kids during the school year, usually middle school students, and take them. They would come out with us anywhere. The programs were anywhere from one to five days long. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would go camping and hiking and building, you know, like making friction fires and looking at the stars at nighttime, doing night hikes and doing um, wild edible hikes. Okay. See, like, okay, the Native Americans who maybe lived here, these were the the edible plants that they they were knowledgeable about, and we would literally go and eat stuff (laughs) off the land on our hikes. Um, And sometimes they were just uh, really, really just super fun and nonchalant. And others were working with inner city kids who were like at risk youth who it was like (laughs) they've only ever been a few blocks away from home. Yeah. Yeah. Some of these kids grew up a half an hour from the ocean and had never seen the ocean. Yeah. Um, Which then eventually led me to working with at risk youth in Alaska. Back in 2010, I became a wilderness therapy guide for teenage addicts like 16 year old meth addicts 14 year old alcoholics um and i would take them it would be like a 49 day wilderness expedition in alaska where we're sleeping in a new location every night and uh, ocean canoeing around and then backpacking and um that was actually really incredible i'm sure i had as much growth or more as these kids did yeah that that. That's crazy. So that was that was after you were in Southern California and then you went to Alaska. Is that I was still living in California at the time, but I would be just like taking summer trips yeah. up to uh, Alaska okay. and then coming back down to California where I still had like my home and everything there where I was like that's, renting with a bunch of friends. That's crazy. And um, I had no idea that like years later that I would end up working with addiction recovery because after working in Alaska and doing that, um, also doing a little bit of that in like the North Cascades and Washington, that's, then I went to university at Humboldt State University and said, I want to be a wildlife biologist and um, got my degree to be a wildlife, um, basically like wildlife management and conservation biology, and then went to work for a timber harvest company And before that, I was on like a scientific data collection expedition where there were four of us and we canoed 800 miles down the Yukon River in Alaska, a a different Alaska wilderness trip, but for science collection instead. Huh. That's pretty cool. And and then this is the part. So I I read this in your bio. Um, So you, you started to go there, but I just wanted to like, kind of reset myself in your timeline. Um, so you ate seafood 
and mm-hmm. it caused a traumatic brain injury or something yes. to so i'm guessing it was raw oyster it was not raw it was in a can it was a canned oyster okay yes and actually getting it from an oyster i'm like the only documented case ever okay um, typically most people get it from a bony fish associated with the coral reef and it's not actually the fish itself or the oyster itself that does the damage it's something that the fish or the oyster eats that's actually poisonous. Okay. And so it's a single-celled dinoflagellate that bioaccumulates up the food chain and it stores itself in the fatty tissues of fish or an oyster in my case, which, you know, siphons the water mm-hmm. and then gets the little, you know, single-celled organisms to eat. Essentially, the organism dies and there is a chemical compound that persists a very, very strong chemical compound that even at the most extreme high cooking temperatures, this chemical compound will persist and not break down and continue to be just as poisonous as if you didn't cook it at all. So yeah. cooking it has nothing to do with making it more safe. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. I did not expect that to be the story. Um, I expected it to be like a raw oyster and then it was going to scare me for the rest of my life. But this scares me maybe even a little bit more. I don't know. But um, so you ate a canned fish. You obviously, did you get sick right away? Did you know something was wrong or what? How did this like manifest? It was almost exactly 24 hours later. So I was on a rock climbing trip with five other friends we had several vehicles and we were camping we were, it was like a three-day weekend and i just gotten one weekend with uh, my owl hooting job the season just started mm-hmm. and then we did three-day weekend and we went out and uh we all were eating our own lunches individually so i'm the only one who ate the oysters i hoarded them because i loved them and i'm like nope i'm not sharing these yeah. <laughs> and the next day we were driving back and about halfway back which was on a really windy road, super windy road, Highway 36, where <laughs> it takes 36 times the length of time to get anywhere because it's so windy. <laughs> it's my joke. And um, I noticed the first symptom ever was really bizarre. And it's actually the symptom that helped us um, diagnose that it was ciguatera neurotoxin illness that I had. And it was a pain in my tooth. Huh. Bizarre. And then it was spreading to my other teeth and then into my jaw. And it was so strange that, you know, I was in the back seat of this old, uh, what, what are they called? The Westphalia vans, those old, mm-hmm. old Westphalia. Yeah, yep. the VW the Westphalia. Yeah. yeah. I was like lounging in the back, like, yeah, this is great. And then there were two guys up front. One of the, the men up front, he happened to be a wilderness EMT. Mm-hmm which is great because that's, hey, it's a, this is how you handle emergency stuff when you don't have emergency equipment. Um, and the, so I said, told him what was going on. And things were a little bit progressing. I was starting to feel a little, a little bit off a little everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, just keep an eye on me. Just, and he ruled out stroke. He was ruling out heart attack. And at some point there was this crazy feeling that I had never experienced before and the only way to experience to explain it it feels like there was a hot swirling knife of poison swirling around and stirring in my chest okay kind of like um when you picture a a big witch's pot being brewed and stirred it's like 
that, but like it feels like it was like a, this swirling poison moving around in hmm. in my chest. And then I almost lost consciousness. And I kind of like was kind of almost like bl almost blacked out for a moment. And it was a, a real scare. Yeah. And by the time we had, you know, they, they drove me, we were like an hour away from like the hospital, but they drove me to the hospital. I, I went there and everything was like, seemed to be totally normal. Like nothing's wrong. Um, and so then kind of didn't really think a whole lot of it. Mm -hmm. But then this neurotoxin was now in my body and it was over time, it slowly wreaks more and more havoc. And actually, about a month later, I think that's actually the exact moment when I got the 19 millimeter lesion in the left front lobe of my brain, which was pretty much due to like an ischemic stroke type situation. And um, it was triggered by actually eating chicken. And I, I eventually, for about a year and a half or so, I couldn't eat any meat whatsoever because it could trigger a heart attack because of the proteins. Oh my goodness. And and I had to learn the hard way. And so basically I like ate some chicken and then um, like a half hour later, I started to feel that I, the hot swirling poison knife was in my chest again. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like fell and collapsed and was like leaning up against the wall. And my boyfriend at the time um, was there and he actually I, I became unresponsive i became unresponsive and it was kind of getting like tunnel vision like like i was on my way out like i wasn't sure if it was gonna be my last breaths or not mm -hmm. it was this strange sensation because it's almost and you hear people say this like there's almost this really really peaceful surrender it was, I, I started, I went from almost panic to peaceful surrender. Mm -hmm. I went from, I'm going to die to here it is. Right. And I wasn't really breathing. And so I was started to receive like mouth to mouth, you know, my heart was still beating, but I wasn't like really, there was, <laughs> I was, <laughs> I started, so I got some mouth to mouth, I guess, oxygen and, um, eventually i kind of came back to like reality and consciousness and um and then things seemed to like resolve and it was like it, it was be like as if nothing happened yeah I was like, it's like okay well that's weird and then i remember just going to work and it happened to me again at work but this time i was out and hooting for owls and i was about to go open the truck door to go on my hike to go hoot and there it goes again the the swirling poison in my chest hmm. and so i grabbed my my radio it's a two-way radio that reaches like every single person in the company mm -hmm. <laughs> even like above and beyond so i called and this is when like everyone hears it and i told them i was like someone needs to come get me immediately and bring me to the emergency room and so by the, the time that they sent the closest employee to come in and get me and uh, 
on the way there, I started blacking out and becoming like a bit non-responsive again. And I, 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 all I remember was like his hand on my legs, shaking me saying, stay with me, stay with me. Don't, don't, you know, stay with me. And, um, I kind of was having those, those moments again. And then by the time we got back to the, to the ER, my body had kind of resolved it again. Like it like goes through these things where it's like maybe going to die. And there are people who have, who die from this through cardiac arrest and respiratory paralysis, whether the diaphragm muscle required for breathing paralyzes and you can't breathe. Either that or your blood pressure drops so low that the heart stops beating. And so that would be happening. My blood pressure would get insanely low where I couldn't stand, I couldn't walk hmm. at all. And it would be, it would happen in an instant where it's like, I remember one time it happened when I was actually at a red light, thankfully a red light, and my hands dropped off my lap into my steering wheel and I like lost consciousness for a moment. And so those moments would happen. And there's people who die from that because the blood pressure just gets so low and the heart stops beating. Um, and so I would put like so much salt in my water to keep, to try to keep my blood pressure up. I was like salting myself like crazy, like crazy. Hmm. Um, and so, and then eventually got pretty bad to the point where, um, Every, about 45 minutes or so after falling asleep every night, it, the same thing would happen where it's there's this the near-death experience. And so I eventually got to the point where I would make my forerunner. I had an old 93 Toyota forerunner, and I had a bed. I made it into a bed in the back. And instead of going to sleep at home in my bed, I would drive to the emergency room parking lot with my elderly Labradoodle, and we would sleep there every night. Really? In the event, in, in the event, I needed a defibrillator to get my heart started again. How long did you do that for? The thing is, is I don't remember because my memory got so weird during that time. Mm -hmm. This is where it also got scary, where I remember being in the grocery store one day and I ran into some friends. I said, oh, my gosh, it's so good to see you. I haven't seen you in so long. How are you? And they looked at me with really concerned faces. And they're like, Jessica. We were at your house yesterday with you for like three hours last night. And I, I had no record. I couldn't remember. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So I was experiencing some pretty intense brain damage. Yeah, I'd say so. And so that was scary. And then I began to have all this slurred speech and my cognitive processing slowed down and people would talk to me and there would be these long processes of pauses as my brain was trying to figure out what they would say. And as I would speak back to them, it would be this really like slurred speech. And sometimes the wrong word would be like used in there and just weird stuff was going on with my language, with my body coordination and my autonomic nervous system was totally dysregulated hmm. why it would be things like my autonomic the autonomic nervous system regulates our blood pressure and it just wouldn't do it the right way <laughs> and there would be all these things going haywire and it it also does something called un unraveling the myelin sheath and that's what multiple sclerosis is ms does that so i had a lot of, i had ms symptoms lyme disease symptoms um, toxic mold exposure symptoms. Um, it, I had developed, um, it created basically rheumatoid arthritis and 
highly, highly extreme, extreme sensitivities to food that would either cause excruciating amounts of physical pain or at high risk of cardiac arrest. So the number of food items I could eat would be like I could count on my hand. Hmm. And uh, it was really severe for a very long time. Um, anyway, I just said a whole lot. Yeah. How and, and how, how old were you when this set in? Uh, like my mid thirties. Well, how old was I? Let's see. That was in, um, because it was February, uh, 21st, 2016 when I ate the oyster, the, the oysters. And then it was, it progressively got worse over the next couple years. Oh, Everything goodness. got worse. So things got worse with time. Yeah. As the neurotoxin con continued to wreak havoc on my autonomic nervous system and Here's the thing with any neurotoxic illness, because this was a, a microscopic neurotoxin. Once, you know, I ha had to do some pretty extreme things to physically get it out of my body because it's a hard one to get out, just like toxic mold. Um, just because the toxin leaves your body doesn't mean you necessarily start to begin to recover because it causes things like PTSD and traumas and fears. And now, now your, your brain is still wired for this fear response mm -hmm. and you're still hypersensitive to things. Uh, it can be extreme emotional sensitivity, sensitivity to food, to light, to loud noises, all sorts of things. And so I would usually have to um, go and hide in like my room and turn all the lights off and have it be super dark, super quiet, because even stimulation from a little bit of noise or light would cause my body to flare up in extreme physical pain because it was overstimulating. My body was going through so much. It couldn't handle more stimulation. And so... This was going on for multiple years. You, you obviously were going in and out of the hospital. You knew something was going on. Did they, did they know what it was or was it you were chasing like a ghost? So I knew it was Ciguatera. And for a long time, I would actually have like doctors or EMTs like kind of belittle me. Mm -hmm. like, like, oh, they're there. You're just having a panic attack you don't get in there like you know that doesn't happen from oysters mm -hmm. and eventually then i did get diagnosed with ciguatera neurotoxin and everything that i was saying was happening then the doctors were eventually were like yeah i, I had one doctor who was like actually listened and like heard me out and did his research and was like yeah the way that you're describing it there's only one known thing in the world of medicine that this could possibly be which is ciguatera neurotoxin illness hmm. and you know you had a lot of uh rejection as a kid so i'm sure that that kind of was like hey you guys aren't listening to me you're just rejecting my idea here and like that yeah. had to be sort of bringing stirring stuff up at that point too right like yes yeah. it, oh, it was it, you know, it stirred up a lot. And what ended up happening was I went and became so neurotic about doing my own research and how the brain works hmm. on how the body works and how the nervous system works, all this stuff. And I eventually learned so much that I began to put my own healing protocol together. 
And I'm like, oh, it would make sense if this is the part that needs to be fixed and this and this. Let me, okay, it makes sense for me to do this action in my life. Mm-hmm. And I did that over and over and over and over and over. And every time I did that, I got positive results in a way that helped me progress towards health and healing, whether it was physical. First, I focused all entirely on the physical. And it, it did help, but then I plateaued tremendously. And then I realized, oh, through more research, I have to heal the emotional so that I have the epigenetic changes that will occur in my body to heal the physical. Mm-hmm. And that's how that's how you heal a chronic illness, even a chronic illness that doctors will tell you over and over again, you don't, there's no way to heal from this. And this is why I healed and reversed my rheumatoid arthritis. That was a side effect of all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I healed and recovered from the extreme fibromyalgia that I was experiencing. When you heal from trauma, your fibromyalgia goes away. Right. Your um, autoimmune diseases go away. When you when you uh, clear up the physical environment and then heal from the emotional, hmm. then your those things go away. And there's I know a lot of people who've done it. And there's in, there's entire like coaches and books and all sorts of things. There's movements of people who are healing from all of these things. In your standard doctor will say you can't heal from that. Here's the medicine to manage it. But there's a ton of people who are, they don't have to manage it anymore because they've healed from it and recovered from it. Right. That's, is that kind of like that book? I think there's a book, The Body Keeps Score or something like that, right? There's, yeah. yeah. So The Body Keeps the Score is all about trauma. And then there's another newer book by Dr. Gabor Mate, The Myth of Normal. Mm-hmm. And that one is, goes even more into the the chronic illness aspect of it and how chronic illness is a symptom of unresolved childhood trauma. Hmm. And oftentimes then um, adult stressors in life will kind of topple on top of the childhood trauma and all of a sudden the body goes, I can't take it anymore. And then it shows up in some physical chronic illness. And before it was, you had mentioned every addiction is a symptom of childhood trauma. So we're always circling back to the, the childhood yeah. stuff, right? It's like, uh, yes, it's imp- yes. it's important to recognize that, like how we grew up, definitely has a uh, an impact on our adult lives. And I think some of us forget that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah. you know, as parents, like I'm a parent now, and I try to um we always say like my wife and i are trying to at least be the start of breaking up all these generational Uh you know cycles and traumas and it's not easy to be that right that uh parent it's like to be this generation it's it's like it's a challenge there's a lot you we get a lot of weird looks um we get a lot of pushback from family members um but and like and this is not to say that we're doing an awesome job with our kids because we make a lot of mistakes and we have our own trauma. So like, but I just, you know, we're, and like, I'll say it to my older son now, like, we're just trying to give you like a little less. <laughs> like, I know that we're not, we're not going to get it perfect, but hopefully you get a little less and then the next one gets a little less. And at some point we'll heal this line of, you know, whatever this is, but yeah, we all carry it. And um, we do. Yeah. it's tough stuff and yeah and healing from trauma is also a gift usually yeah. the people who who shine the brightest have healed from the most challenging things right 
And it's, and that's, you know, that's an incredible thing. Healing from trauma is a gift. And everyone at some point in their life is going to experience some form of, you know, trauma. (laughs) And, you know, going back to the addiction piece of it and tying it into childhood, my all everything that became addictive in my life was rooted in that external validation seeking because I felt like I had no value anywhere that I went in my life as a kid. Mm. I, I had no conscious awareness of that. I didn't ever think to myself, man, that I don't belong anywhere. It was just, I just had a stress response, a fear response, a, a freeze response. Mm. My primary stress response is a fr- has been a freeze response and then also being extremely emotionally sensitive so you know trauma does one of two things it either makes a person so uh, very sensitive emotionally Mm -hmm. and those are the ones who tend to be the strongest empaths you know a lot of you can feel a person's emotion from just looking at their body language in a movie or in the room with you like you're like you feel it yeah and then it does the, it can just like a wound, a wound, if you know, if you're wounded, that part of your body is more sensitive, physical wound, emotional wound. But then just like a physical wound can get calloused and numb and feel nothing. Trauma for people who feel numbed out and can't really feel much. I know people who didn't even cry after their mom died because they were too numbed out from their own trauma that they had not healed from Hmm. you might be talking to one of those people i'm not sure (laughs) no no i am sure i don't my wife always tells me you gotta cry you gotta cry so Mm -hmm. like that yeah and you know what i married the other version so Uh, that's common that's the because we attract that which we need yeah 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 you know you gotta feel it to heal it you gotta feel it to heal it and that numbness it's the subconscious mind goes, you know what? When I used to feel and ex- when I used to express my feelings in the past, it happened in a way that the per- the other person in the room made me feel unsafe. I felt unsafe to express those feelings. Therefore, for me to survive, I must hide that part of who I am and repress this authentic, real version of me who feels in that way. Mm-hmm. And my survival mechanism now goes, I have to numb out to survive. Yeah. And that could be either because of what I just said or because if I feel it, it's going to be way too intense. And I don't know if I, it feels like I can't survive the intensity of those feelings. Let me hide it. Yeah. I, you know, it's a, I mean, personally, I, I couldn't tell you what it is on my end, but I, you know, I, yeah. I definitely see it out in the world and people and, and people I yeah. interact with. Um, you know, I still am working on my, my story and, and, you know, I think it, it takes time for everybody. Yeah. Um, but I yeah. do know that, you know, there are physical to your point, like if you have weird stuff going on emotionally, there are physical, uh, repercussions to it that that would be kind of yes. what I, I do know for a fact. Yes, absolutely. I mean, just one little example, um, you know, someone who I look up to in this world, his name is Joe Polish. Um, and he 
has a very, very strong influence. I mean, he's he's a he makes like millions of dollars per month. Mm. And he's the type of person who his prime directive in this world, what he wants is to change the global conversation about addiction. Mm. He has such a heart for it. And I love when people of that influence who have that level of influence have a heart like that because he speaks about it every opportunity he gets. And I don't remember where I was going with that. Oh, yeah. He shared something with me, what you were saying, you know, the physical. Mm -hmm. One of his stories, he's like, you know, I had this um, pain in my shoulder. It was his shoulder or neck for like two years. It was just like this incessant pain that wouldn't go away. He goes, and then the moment I declared out loud, he goes, you know, I'm going to take a one-year sabbatical. Boom. In that exact moment, the pain, the physical pain went away. Mm -hmm. I was, oh, I'm taking a year off from work to reset my nervous system. Boom. The physical pain vanished immediately. Yeah. Immediately. It was an emotional-based physical pain. All chronic pain isn't in most cases chronic pain is not because there's physical damage to the tissues it's because there's an unresolved emotion or emotional event that that physical location of your body is storing right the pain of that emotional event this is why on massage tables all good massage therapists will know that at any moment any of their clients can start busting out into tears and big 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 wrenching ones because sometimes you massage the right part of a person's body and you release away the phys- the emotional pain that was being stored there. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that. I, I have not had that experience either, but I have had some good massages, but yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. No breakdowns yet. Um, yeah. I'm waiting. Uh, so you, you were, you were uh, sick. You mm-hmm. got to a point where you're learning how to treat yourself and um but then you found a doctor that did listen to you what did what did this look like for you like once the doctor figured it out did everything kind of click or was this now like another journey it was definitely another journey because the doctor who diagnosed me didn't actually have any solutions he just said on paper we can tell you what you have okay and the solutions were essentially things that would actually degrade and hurt my physical body worse in the long run, such as I had really extremely bad peripheral neuropathy and the prescription medication for that, you actually have to increase your dose with time and it doesn't do any healing. And if you come off of it, it can cause seizures and all sorts of not good. And I'm like, I'm not touching. I'm nope. I remember I had it in my kitchen in case I had, I'm like, I'm not going there. I'm so glad I had the strength to not numb out in because that would have to the physical pain because physical pain exists for a reason. Mm. It says you need to take real life action in your life to resolve this pain. If otherwise it just will not heal. Right. And that's the same for emotional pain. If we take any anything to numb out then we are incapable of healing from it. It's like if you have a broken foot, but you couldn't feel the physical pain, if you kept walking around on it, you're going to continue to break it more and do more damage. And it won't heal. It'll just get worse and cripple you in time. Yeah. 
So we have to feel the pain. You got to feel it to heal it. You got to feel it to know what action to take on it. And during that um, time of being really, really sick, I also had an identity crisis since my phys my identity was based around doing all of these physical things, rock climbing, backpacking, guiding these wild adventures. Hmm. And part of that was a form of external validation seeking. Let me go do extreme things in the world that people will give me external validation for. Mm -hmm. That was a part of my subconscious motivation to go and do those things. And what do I do at barbecues and at parties? And let me see how many people I can get external validation from when I wow them with my story of the things I've done. And now here I am. Oftentimes I would be bedridden, super sick, can't walk in a straight line down my hallway, slurred speech. And what does that do? I had my pre-existing subconscious low self-worth dependent on external validation seeking behaviors. I no longer had those external validations finger, uh, behaviors at my fingertips because right. I also was too sick to go out and socialize when I was the extreme charismatic extrovert because that was another form of that adult security blanket. Let me get external validation mm -hmm. because I don't feel good about who I am. And so that got ripped away from me. So my subconscious self-worth plummeted even more when I was just like home feeling like I was on my deathbed. Um, and that's also when I was with a man who was severely addicted to pornography, who was also a narcissist, who was also an alcoholic, hmm. ca you know, casual cocaine user, you know, poppers, all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, doing a hundred whippets a night, multiple times per week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and my subconscious mind was attracted to him because my subconscious self-worth was very low and we attract someone who will validate our existing subconscious self-worth. Mm -hmm. And it was then going back to childhood of, oh, let me... In childhood, my emotional needs weren't met. So in adulthood, that's that in it's integrated into my subconscious mind until you heal from it. Is oh, let me go attract what was familiar in childhood, mm -hmm. because familiarity is what feels safe to the subconscious mind, even if it's actually destructive. So there would be times when I'd be like, you know, collapsing on the ground and pretty much going into like a seizure, and it was time to call nine one one. And he would just look at me and be like, you did this to yourself. You should have stayed in bed. Jeez. That's not good. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and even being treated in those ways, uh, I, one of my strongest addictions was actually to him in an extreme, like, you know, I, I almost want to call it codependency, in a way, but he wasn't necessarily dependent on me. But I, the very first time I spent time with him, we spent a lot of time together, like on our, you know, we met on Tinder and mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time together that day. And um, it was the first time since I'd gotten sick that I had forgotten I was sick. Mm -hmm. It had been years. And so he became a drug to me. It was the first time in, I think it was maybe a, two years or so into my illness that maybe I met him, maybe a year and a half. And the sickness had consumed me in such a 
like terrifying, horrifying way. I mean, I it got very bad that what happens when the subconscious mind feels very good and forgets about the pain in your life, it goes, oh, give me more of, of that. Mm. It creates very, very strong neuropathways in the brain to say, keep seeking that at all costs. That's the, that's the thing. And so that's what happened with him. He became one of my addictions because my subconscious mind goes, when you're with him, you forget that you're sick. Hmm. But it would only be like, there would be those, those highs. And then with all the super lows in between with a little blips of highs and the, all the lows in between little blips of highs, all the lows in between. And the highs were really high. And he was also addicted to pornography. So he was constantly rejecting my sexual advances because he his the neuropathways in his brain had uh, become, had a preference to pornography. He had trained himself unintentionally to prefer pornography. Hmm. So there was no sexual arousal if he was with a real person. And there would be the performance anxiety would be too high. The self-worth would be too low. Mm-hmm. And the subconscious mind had been trained. You only get sexually aroused when you are alone and with a digital screen, not if there's another person in the room. And this was like, so did, was this at the start of your relationship too? It was. Yeah. And at at first he just said that he wanted to get to know me more Hmm. before, you know, and he was playing that card he said that he he was too into me to jump in to you know he just wanted to keep it like non-sexual at first mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and eventually he had the bravery to tell me that he believes that he knew it was from his porn usage that he had performance anxiety that he had this is that's when I was learning that porn addiction was even a thing. I didn't know that porn addiction existed mm-hmm. um, at that point. And so at most, the longest amount of time he would stay at my house would be like three nights in a row. And then he would go back to his place so that he could go and get his hit so that he could go get his fix of pornography. Mm. He couldn't stay longer. And that was a very rare when he would stay that length of time. And so what did that do to my subconscious self-worth? It's rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. Yeah. And so that would that basically caused uh that the subconscious self-worth to go even lower, which caused all of the physical pain, all of the physical symptoms to get significantly worse. Because you were still dealing with, like, no real path forward in your your illness, right? Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. I was still in a pretty dire straits yeah. at that point. Um, and then this is where it gets interesting. Is so many people who have some form of head trauma or brain damage develop something called hypersexuality disorder. And it's essentially where it creates extremely strong sexual urges. Mm-hmm. Like 
it just seems almost like biologically impossible that they could be that strong. And it's like an extreme, it's essentially your brain just turns into a sex addiction, even without having made previous choices to get there. Mm -hmm. It would be like having a nicotine addiction without ever having nicotine in a way. Well, I mean, I had sexual experiences, you know, I was yeah. in my thirties and, you know, but, um, so that was a whole nother layer on there because for like me, I was never interested in pornography. I was interested in all, like the, the human connection aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there's ever been any scientific studies on this, but I believe that there is some inner wisdom of the subconscious mind that knows, hey, in order to heal from all of this stuff that you have going on, you need to have really high amounts of oxytocin in your body and in your brain to heal from PTSD, trauma, and chronic illnesses. Like oxytocin is the neurochemical that gets you there. Mm-hmm. And it's also the neurochemical of safety. That's what makes you feel safe in your body, in your mind. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that people who develop hypersexuality disorder, their subconscious mind is trying to compel you to go take action to spike your oxytocin because sexual experiences will spike it more than like anything else. <laughs> Yeah, isn't I, I my wife has an oxytocin uh, tattoo uh, to like a birth release? It's released at like birth too, I think. Yes, uh huh. Yeah. And it's released when mothers are breastfeeding yeah. as well when they're lactating. Yeah. Um. Mm -hmm. yeah. When you um give a hug, especially if the hug is twenty seconds or more, and you're yes. not doing the pat, you know, when if you're patting someone on the back, that's saying I'm not comfortable with the lean in and do the the embrace. Yeah. Yeah, she, melt into the embrace, you get the oxytocin. Yeah, she always tells me it's a twenty-second hug for oxytocin. So yeah, yeah I know yeah. that. I know that uh, that uh -huh. time duration. Um, so, so this happens. Does this happen at the same time that you're watching? You know, your boyfriend at the time, like, be in this porn addiction, or are these things uh, not happening at the same time? Because I could see how they would be in conflict, right? Like you're in this mindset and he's in this like retreat mindset so that, that they were yeah. happening at the same time okay. and it was essentially like experiencing extreme withdrawal symptoms every night mm. and and day and night mm -hmm. because it i don't know how else to explain it yeah i mean he's he's retreating <laughs> home and away from you and you're like hey I, yeah i get it yeah 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 and so then kind of going back even before the brain damage, there were some subconscious programs that my subconscious mind had developed as another coping mechanism mm -hmm. for external validation seeking behavior. And that was to um, feel valuable by seeking sexual attention from men. And so I think that is a secondary reason, either the primary or secondary or equal reason why my brain developed hypersexuality disorder. Mm -hmm. It says, my brain said, you need oxytocin to heal and recover because that's 
what everyone would need. And also, I think my subconscious mind said, you feel totally unsafe and you've learned to feel, when we feel valuable, we feel safe. When we feel valuable, we feel safe. And my subconscious mind goes, you've only learned how to feel valuable through external validation seeking behaviors. And one of those is through the sexual experience. And so I think that pre-existing um, pattern that I had got extremely mega amped up and amplified with the PTSD hmm. from being so sick and all the, all the things. So, and I actually know, another, there's other people I know who have had severe chronic illnesses who've developed hypersexuality disorder. Sometimes it was also from another microscopic neurotoxin, like to black toxic mold exposure. Hmm. So you have, <clears throat> I just want to jump forward a mm -hmm. little bit because you have this going on. He has his thing going on. I'm guessing the story doesn't end with you together. Maybe I'm no, wrong. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So um, how long do you live in this sort of conflicted thing? Before? Three years. Okay. Three years. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. And it's a, it was torture. It was hell. It was, um, it was not, it was... <laughs> It was rough yeah. in many ways. Um, and so I remember being so proud of myself because it was the first time I ever experienced applying healthy boundary setting ever for the first time in my life. And it was um, a New Year's resolution. And it was, I told him New Year's Day, said, if you're drinking, I'm not going to interact with you. I'm not going to engage with you. Don't call me. Don't text me. Don't ask me to come over. Mm. And that was so hard for me to do. That was like putting a boundary on my addiction, saying I'm I'm push I'm slowly pushing my addiction away. And right. it was so, so, so hard for me to do that. And, and it, the reason why is because I hadn't really developed that sense of safety in my subconscious mind and nervous system. The moment when we internally have that sense of safety, then we don't have that compelling urge to reach for an escapism behavior. Every escapism behavior can be addictive, right? And so mm -hmm. we've, uh, and it's that escapism thing is let me escape from the pain of my reality because I feel unsafe and insecure. But when we cultivate that sense of safety and security from within because of healing, then we're no longer compelled to reach for that thing outside of us to try to feel good on the inside. Right. Right. And so um, since I didn't have that safety yet, it was really incredibly, incredibly difficult for me to um, make that boundary and stick to it. Yeah. I, I say on here a lot, like what people are doing is they're trying to regulate their insides or something from the outsides. Right. Yeah. Like that is really yeah. all we're trying to do. Um, you know, and that could be alcohol, uh, social media, cake, yep. ice cream, sex, uh -huh. whatever. It's like yeah. gaming, it, yeah, and external validation seeking. Yeah, and it normally doesn't work. I mean, it works in a like a very short little microburst of time, and then you're right yeah. back to feeling that same sort of void inside yeah. or whatever it is that yeah. unrest. Yeah, it's um. It's a poor temporary solution to a long-term problem. Yeah. And unless 
the, the problem doesn't have to be long term. It's it's just there until you heal and resolve those emotional wounds of the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, there's that saying that I'm sure some of your other guests have said, and maybe you've heard a million times that connection is the opposite of addiction. Yes. And with that, there's actually the three C's of connection. Definitely two. And depending on some of your beliefs, a third. And so I'm curious if you've heard of the three. No, no, I haven't. I mean, I've heard the, you know, connection is the opposite, but I've never heard the three. So. So the obvious connection is let me connect with another person. Let me reach out and connect with another human being and others and individuals and groups and do it in a way that is not just surface level. Let me connect in a deeper way that requires some bravery, some vulnerability, mm-hmm. and, and really be seen. Let me see others and be seen deeply and connect on that level. That's the obvious connection, right? Mm-hmm. But then we can only connect as deeply with others as we have connected with ourselves. What level of self-awareness do you have? How well do you really know yourself? How well do you know your patterns, your thoughts, your reactions, your whys, your hows, your whos? Your, how intimately aware are you of you? Because the moment we are not focusing on ourselves, we're distracted from ourselves. We're plugged. We're watching YouTube. We're scrolling our phone. We're watching the news. We're doing this. We're doing that. We're you know, whatever it might be, we are distracted from ourselves or even involved in, you know, engaging in our escapism behaviors is the ultimate, let me escape from who I am. Mm-hmm. I don't want to know myself. I don't want to explore myself because it is painful and challenging and difficult to go there and it requires a lot of bravery and I'm not ready for it. So the moment we set our escapisms aside, ooh, some scary stuff comes up. Ooh, I don't, ooh, you know, that's, that's uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's, how well do we know ourselves? So connecting with ourselves on a significantly deeper, more intimate level that does require real bravery. If it's if there's no vulnerable vulnerability or bravery involved, then it means you're not getting to know yourself on a deeper level. Do you know how many people will cry silently because even when no one else is around because they feel like it's a subconscious thing where it feels too vulnerable to cry with your vocal cords, even if no one else can hear you. Yeah, that is a real thing. That's a real thing. That's a sign that there's a healing needs to take place. <laughs> um, and so that's the second connection is connection with yourself. Yeah. And that's actually the more you do that with yourself, then the more you can connect with others. And once you do that, the more you become so aware of it. And you begin to see and detect how connected with an individual they are with themselves because of how they're able to connect with you and others. Hmm. And you begin to see it and it becomes so obvious. And then there's the third C, the third connection, which um, if you would have asked me this in my 20s, I would have just had so much judgment towards you <laughs> for towards someone who would have said this um, is the spiritual connection. Yeah. Uh, you know, I spent my entire 20s being one heck of a proud, judgmental atheist, I'll tell you. <laughs> and through my recovery journey, I had an unintentional spiritual awakening that just makes everything better and easier. 
and there's actually neuroscience, the neuroscience of spirituality uh, co-aligns with my experience and other people's experience of when we have a spiritual connection, mm -hmm. no matter what your beliefs are, it doesn't matter who you are and what your beliefs or background is. It doesn't matter what your religion is. If you're doing it outside of a religion, I do it out. You know, my spirituality has no ties to any religion. Mm -hmm. And, um, Neuroscience shows that we become more resilient human beings and we can resolve from challenges faster, quicker, and easier. There's a book by Lisa Miller called The Awakened Brain that goes into the neuroscience of it for anyone who might be interested. Okay. And so that third connection is that spiritual connection. So those are the three C's of connection. The opposite of addiction is connection. The three C's. Yeah. I like all those. Um... Yeah. The spiritual connection, I just started going to church for the first time in forever. Um, okay. It's a long story of why we ended up there, but we ended up there as my younger son. Um, and I've had a kind of an on and off relationship with, you know, okay. religion. Not, no, it's mostly been off. So um, finding a place was, was tricky. Um, but we've been going to a unity church, so it's a little bit different than, uh, you know, typical, uh, sort of experience, but it is very spiritual and yes. it's, it's been yes. good so far. Um, and I'm going to yeah. continue on that, but I, I do want to jump into how you got to become a sex and porn recovery specialist. Like where oh, yeah. did that where did that jump come? So like, you you are obviously having your issues around you know this, you know this hypersexuality, and then you have a, a boyfriend who's addicted to porn. So this is all coming at you really fast, and then like one day you just like this is what I want to do, <laughs> or like how does not quite like that? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it started with me not knowing if I would ever be reliable enough to work for another person because of my health issues at the time. Mm. And so I was so engulfed in the world of health that I actually took a 12 month long, it was like 800 hours or something. Um, Chris Kresser is a functional medicine doctor mm -hmm. who is absolutely incredible, phenomenal. He also recovered from his own mysterious illness that doctors were like, we have no solutions and just nothing. <laughs> Um, and he's one of the most world's famous functional medicine doctors who was actually the first one to actually give me some ac actual real answers and solutions and protocols that actually jump-started my, my healing in a way that I don't know if any other doctor could have. Mm. Um, and so I was like, you know what, let me be a health coach because then I can work from home, do my own hours. Um, if, you know, if I'm having one of those days where I just have to be bedridden for, you know, I, I, I there's no boss I have to call into. Yeah. And so it, it came from a place of fear of not knowing if anybody else could ever trust me to work for them. Okay. And so I learned a tremendous about uh, a, trend, a tremendous amount of the art of coaching, the art of behavior change. When someone says, this is part of who I am. I don't want to act or behave this way anymore. Help me change this habit. Mm -hmm. Well, an addiction is like an extreme habit. And so, so much of it applied. But then, you know, one day I was doing a, I was sitting outside in the yard 
on a camp chair, having one of those days of extremely low self-worth. And I'd been doing a lot of self-compassion work, realizing actually at the heart of the healing for all of this, 100% of it is self-compassion, elevating that self-worth. All of everything falls into place where we needed to, where we wanted to. And so I was having one of those days of just, uh, you know, I'm worthless. I was uh, almost two years on receiving disability because of my illness. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm just a leech on the government and mm. people's taxes. And but like, literally, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I like was really, really sick and actually needed it. Um, and I was like, I, how can I give back and contribute? I was having all of these like, how can I give back and contribute? And I'm worthless feelings, even though intellectually, I'd be like, you know, I'm a good I'm a good sister. I'm a good friend. I'm a, you know, I, all of these things I could write off as bullet list of all of the reasons why I could be valuable, but my emotional state of feeling valuable was a million light years away from that. Mm -hmm. And so I, I did a pattern interrupt. I interrupted the pattern of the past of subconscious self-worth. And I said to myself, you know, Jessica, you're better than this. You know better. You know not to sit here and sulk and allow yourself to just have these thought loops to consume you. I had been doing the work. Like when you have those thoughts, you interrupt that immediately. And so I went and I did a um, Dr. Joe Dispenza meditation that I had done many times. And I think it was the changing beliefs and perceptions ones where mm -hmm. it's guided. It's, they're, they're like guided hypnosis. And it's, um, you know, like asks you things like who, who do you want to be? Who, like, how are you showing up right now? And how do you want to be different? And you get to choose and decide. And it, so I was focusing on self-compassion and I had so much self-compassion during that meditation, um, that it filled me with so it filled me with all those neurochemicals of love and safety and i'm valuable and i i'm full and whole and complete mm -hmm. was feeling all of that within from within me it wasn't because someone walked over and tell, told me it was i i cultivated that from within and it was such a strong experience that there was only one thing i wanted in that moment and that was for other people to feel as amazing as I did in that moment. I was crying. I was sobbing. I was like, oh, my God. This is like I was feeling that self-compassion. Hmm. And then my subconscious mind presented a question to me. It said, who needs this the most? And then my subconscious mind presented the answer. Men suffering from pornography addiction, they don't know where to turn. Yeah. They need this feeling that I have right now. That's how they heal themselves. And in that moment, I went, holy shit, I have the solution. And it's actually a pretty darn good one, full, whole, and complete. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And in that moment, it became my life purpose. Unwavering, and it has been my life purpose ever since. Hmm. Unquestioned. My compass, my arrow is pointed. And I know I have, a, I have direction. And it is so incredible to have such solid direction. And it is so rewarding because my clients come in and I see them getting the results. I see them celebrating. I see the way they're turning their lives around. I see them healing their entire families, their wives, their kids are 
in a better place because they are in a better place. And it's that rip that grand ripple effect of goodness that they're spreading out to everyone they know. And it's absolutely incredible. And the way that I work with my clients is I then also have them identify every single other escapism behavior and choice that they have in their lives, all of them. Because if you don't recognize those and identify them, then if you try to quit one addiction, one escapism, then the other ones will be fueled. You will amplify the others. So you have to tackle all of them at once. Otherwise, the others will either um, strengthen those addictions if they are addictions, or if they're not on the addictive scale yet, they will become addictions. And it's essentially like playing whack-a-mole with the addictions if you don't address them. So my clients come to recover from porn or sex addiction, but once they're in, I say, gotcha, we're covering all of them. Right. We're doing all of it. Because so, it'll just fill the space. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, so, the other yeah. ones will just fill that space. Exactly. So they're overcoming gambling addictions, shopping addictions, eating addictions, alcoholism, uh, nicotine. I mean, you name it. Hmm. Gaming addictions, social media addictions. Yeah, I would imagine that those are big challenges right now yeah. in your yes. world. Yes. Um, yes. Because it's so like right there, the social media one has to be just huge. I, I talk about that on here sometimes. I just think it's really a bad thing. And, I, you know, but it's one that also has some good parts, yeah. right? Like, so it's like, how do you, it's not as easy to me. Social media is closer to like a food addiction. It's like, mm -hmm. or, a se you know, a sex addiction. Yeah. It's like, you kind of need it, but like, you don't need social media, but like, I don't go on Facebook. But last night, my wife was like, hey, look at this post from our town. The recycling isn't going to be picked up tomorrow, right? Like, I, just practical. I, I should be on that platform to get that news. But like, I also know that that platform is a little bit toxic. So I don't go on. Or that. a lot of it. Yeah. Or a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for multiple reasons, because one Sometimes the content you see can be toxic. Mm -hmm. Some of the political fighting, the news, the things that stir up a stress response. So there's that. Two, I mean, there is so much external validation seeking behavior yeah. on social media. Yeah. Let me get my likes. Let me post my selfie. Let me see the comments. And it's akin to gambling, a gambling addiction, because, you know, with, say, uh, porn addiction or alcoholism, you go look for the porn video you go to the booze store there's no question of i wonder if they're going to have it on the shelf this time it's only there once every seven times yeah 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 whereas with gambling it's the it's called um intermittent rewards the reward is there sometimes and as long as i keep going back i'll eventually get the reward that is the most addictive thing that we can have is the intermittent rewards are so addictive that's social media that's gambling that's mm. you know and, and that when we get addicted to certain people that's the same thing because oh maybe like once in every 12 times i see them i get an extreme high there's there that was the good time and there's where there's people people get addicted to certain individuals in relationships and it's that intermittent rewarding system that is highly addictive. Hmm. Hmm. Do you think like, I've never really heard about this. 
So this is me digesting this for the first yeah. time. Yeah. Um, I get, I get it. Yeah. And, uh, I get the people portion of it and I get the gambling and I get the idea of like, Hey, I post this and it might get 10 likes or it might get a hundred. But like, do you also think that this is the same thing that, uh, like a TikTok scroll is trying to hit like, cause like yes. you're going through it and it's like, that's boring. That's boring. That's boring. Oh, that one's good. 100%. Yeah. So it's that same. Yeah. yeah. You digested that and nailed it properly. And you, yes, that is okay. exactly how it's described. Also when it's taught by, I think it was Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's a neurobiologist. Yep. I think he was talking about it in that exact same way. Any scrolling activity, your brain goes, as long as I keep scrolling, I will get a higher reward than what I had before. Mm. As long as I keep scrolling, I will get to the next higher reward and it'll be higher than any of the others let i have to keep going right right because there's something beyond this that's better um uh-huh. i was actually listening to um tristan harris and i forget the other guy's name um but he they were on the joe rogan podcast and tristan is the guy that did the social del- uh, i forget what it's called social, social dilemma. dilemma yeah the okay. social dilemma so that was on netflix but now you know they were on there talking about ai and this other gentleman was the guy that actually developed infinite scroll and he said like at the mm-hmm. time he didn't understand the the destructive nature of this technology that he had created it was really just an idea of like because in the past you would get to the end of the page and you'd have to hit refresh and they were realizing that people would just stop at like the first page of results right so infinite scroll took that thing away and it was it wasn't meant for social media it was meant for like search results or you know, something like that. So now all of a sudden this technology that was created for one thing is now just like everywhere everywhere, and putting this nonsense in your face constantly, right? Like at Twitter, it was like, that's where it was. It was Twitter, I think. That's where he developed it. And it was like, you used to get to the end of the tweets and then you'd have to hit refresh. Well, then now with Infinite Scroll, it just kept going and going yeah. and going. Yeah. And it's like, of course the engagement's higher. Yeah. Um, yeah. I get really worried about social media. Um, Me too. Yeah. And, and I have like yeah. a weird relationship with it. Again, it's like a huge part of my recovery and I'm on Instagram and, but I stay away from Twitter. I stay away from Facebook. Um, Instagram has proven to be pretty good for me. Um, healthy enough, but I also see it's like, eh, yeah, like, you know, it's a highlight reel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it was Joe Polish who said, I may be quoting, I may be getting the wrong person in there, but I think it was Joe Polish who said, um, not having social media is better for you than reading inspirational quotes on social media. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get, it. yeah. I, you know, <laughs> but then like, I, you know, and I know you're dealing with like, you know, men mostly, right? Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with people who are 18 and above and they mm-hmm. are dealing with some challenge. And I and I get that. I fully get that. But like, you know, then I look at my 12-year-old or my 18-year-old and their social life is yeah. connected to this, right? Like they don't use text. They communicate through Snapchat or like literally that's where the communication takes place. So now there's this social element that is now a communication tool. And I can't very well say no, because then they're ostracized from the real connections. It's like it's become very convoluted and how to manage it, I think, is the challenge. Um, 
Yeah. I think that there are many, many, many parents navigating that same challenge yeah. right now. Uh, my sister is navigating that challenge with my 13 year old nephew. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. hard. I'm telling you, it's hard. Like I know for a fact, like TikTok's a problem for my older son. I think he just yeah. took it off his phone. Um, you know, my younger one, he does not have TikTok, but he has Snapchat again because of these like, you know, his baseball teams on there and that's how they like send each other messages. So like, how can I say no, but I know like Snapchat has its bad parts too. So it's like yeah. all these things are just really tricky. And, you know, I came yeah, up when i i mean i had the internet when i was 18 95 was like when i got dial up at my house so i've had it like through all the iterations and i know that there's just there's like bad stuff bad people it is just a toxic yeah <laughs> toxic environment with with no. some good parts you know like i, I wouldn't a... be talking to you without it right exactly. so like this wouldn't be happening without it but I guess the question is, how do we get more of this and less of the other stuff? And I just don't, maybe it's people just don't want this as much as the bad stuff. You know, it's, that is a, that's the million dollar question. I had, a, a lot of my clients aren't on social media anymore. Some of them straight up deleted their accounts. So it's not even abstaining and going back later. Mm -hmm. um, and I even had a client recently who even deleted his YouTube account just because it was, you know, we get that facade of, oh, as long as I'm watching the podcast where I'm learning something, it's good. But then I had this conversation with some of my clients last night on a call. It was then just watching hours and hours and hours of that with your time. But then it's procrastination through education. Yeah. Let me just keep learning and learning and learning. But the real difference is when you take action in your life. Action is what gets you results. Mm -hmm. If you're not satisfied with your results, you need to change your action. And if you're just, when we watch, you know, like that YouTube video that I learned the valuable thing, but it's only valuable when you apply it in your life. And it's that facade or tricking ourselves into thinking we're accomplishing something. Right. Right. Yeah. You're not actually doing it. it. It's, you know, yeah. yeah, it's the difference yeah. of like being in the arena and like then criticizing it. Right. Like it's that kind of talk. Yeah, I get it. I get yeah. it. I mean, I, I have that at work too. Right. Like totally. it's easier to just sit there and just continually say you're like learning how to do something or just diving in and doing it. And, yeah. yeah. And I was listening to something on the Chris Williamson podcast and he was reading something that was by someone else. Once again, I don't know who the name it was by. I wish it was like something along the lines of like telling someone you're going to do the thing is not doing the thing. Writing it on your to-do list is not doing the thing. Tweeting about it is not doing the thing. Um, watching a video about someone else doing the thing is not doing the thing. Getting angry about someone else doing the thing that you didn't do is not doing the thing. The only thing that's doing the thing is doing the thing. Yeah. What thing do you need to do to get the results that you want? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's And sometimes it's the hardest step right it's just yeah. diving in um you know we i saw uh, like a meme um and it's something that i say all the time like to my kids is like don't tell me you're sorry show me you're sorry it's that same concept of like yes. that is the yeah. biggest thing to to kind of make them understand that the behavior was bad right you can tell me you're sorry a hundred times 
but like changed the behavior and that's yeah. really being sorry or yeah. and it's not even about being sorry it's about like taking responsibility for your action at that point and so right yeah and part of the apology is acknowledging the emotions that the other person experienced and letting them know that you you're aware of it and if you're not sure ask mm -hmm. and then saying these are the action steps that i'm taking to ensure that it never happens again right yeah. if that part is miss if those parts are missing <laughs> the apology is so cheapened mm. it is so cheapened yeah. and i'm sure that's a big part of your work too is figuring that part out yep yeah, cl oh, yeah. clearing that wreckage out yep uh, yeah yeah um, yeah so so you do this so I just want people to be aware because you yeah. do this. I, I know you have a website and uh, I'll make sure that I get all that information and link it on social media or, you know, wherever you are. As we just said, social media is bad. I'm going to like link it on my social media, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. because that's sort of the the one thing that we have to do. Um, but so if people want to connect with you, um, mm -hmm. you coach specifically men. Yep. Is that okay so you're and uh i just recorded with somebody who coaches specifically women so like okay. you know that's it's an interesting thing i'd like to make that clear um yeah. and are you doing one-on-one -on -one coaching so there's actually more power in group coaching okay and this i do a little bit of one-on-ones mm -hmm. i do have one-on-ones but it's primarily it's an online course with almost 50 hours mm -hmm. because we go deep we go comprehensive we are healing that shit. Am I allowed to curse on your podcast? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's fine. The, yeah, the it's protocol. fine. <laughs> like, okay. Sometimes I get really passionate about yeah. it. <laughs> and so, I mean, we go so deep. We cover all bases, all level, all levels. We are, you got to feel it to heal it. You got to mm -hmm. understand it. You got to see it. You got to explore it. You need strategies. So I'm very strong on strategies mm -hmm. and taking solid action steps. But then there's also... The, hey, I'm going to have questions. I'm going to need emotional support. There's this and that. So every Monday night, which I'm going to be adding more in the future, I host a two-hour-long bravery boot camp. Okay. Happened to go three hours last night because it was amazing. And that's group coaching. Um, there's normally about a dozen of us in there or so, sometimes less. And any you can just sit back and listen to what others have to say. You can share your wins and celebrations. You can ask your questions and get live coaching. If someone else asks a question, you you can chime in and answer too. You'd be like, "Hey, I remember I, I remember when I once had that question, and this is how I overcame it." Mm. And so it's really a collaborative group thing where someone's going to ask a question, and you didn't even know that you needed that question asked, and then you go, "That's a good question. I needed to I need to know the answer to that. That's going to help me." Yeah. Or someone will. I, this happens all the time. We were talking about it again last night. Um, you know, one of the guys in the group, he goes, well, every question that I had was already answered just from what everyone else said. That's, yeah, and, that's the way it works, right? Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. That's great. I and love so, that. I love that. Um, so I will make sure to link all that so that people can get to you. Um, okay. And, yeah. and it's to be honest, if I'm listening to this, I know what you're what you're solving for is the sex and porn. Um, mm -hmm. But it sounds like the tools that you're implementing could take care of like so much more. Oh yeah. So yes. you know, um, and we handle yeah. the so much more in there. Yeah. Because yeah. 
you know, everyone shows up and it's like, oh, you thought we were only addressing porn addiction or sex addiction? Yeah. I mean, guess what? We're going to we're going to get you to a much higher level than that. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. I love it. Um, before I let you go, I do mm -hmm. like to typically ask people, and it sounds like you listen to a lot of different podcasts and read a lot of books, but I like to ask people about some media that they're taking in in their life currently mm -hmm. that they like to kind of get out into the world. Is there anything that you would like to share? Oh, there are so many good things. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm going to say dopamine nation dopamine nation by dr anna lemke yep i know that one that's a good one and that one is for anyone and everyone even for someone who doesn't identify as having an addiction okay you'll read that and things are going to click into place and you're going to have so much self-awareness on certain things I'm sorry, I have my neighbor's dog is over. And, uh, um, he he was getting into something over there. Quincy, is he okay? <laughs> um, I, all right, I think we're good. He just came over by my side. I don't know what he was getting into over there. So, so dopamine nation. Anything else? Um, you know the uh, book by Dr. Lisa Miller. Yeah, Awakened Brain. I'm going to put that the science there. of spirituality and she doesn't you don't have to be um you don't have to like science to like this book you just have to like stories she does it through amazing storytelling mm. okay so people who are like i don't like science that sounds a little it's like nope <laughs> every human being loves an engaging story yeah 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 all right so i'm gonna link those two um for me this week I am going to uh, dive back to a weird show that I'm finishing up. So I do like, sometimes I'll do books, sometimes I'll do music, whatever. But this week, I'm going to say a show. Um, and I started watching it a while ago as like a goof. But I'm finishing up the last season Riverdale. It was like this weird WB show. It was like a remake of the Archie comics, but reimagined as a modern thing. And the last season is... Um, I, I don't know how I actually like it. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's like a musical. It's very weird. Um, you could almost watch the last season as a standalone type of thing. It's just like a weird, it would be a very weird movie if you were watching it. You would be like, what is this? So, um, but I like, you know, as I'm watching, I'm like, oh, all these actors are pretty good. Um, so it's been, it's been fun to kind of plow through that uh, last season of Riverdale on uh it's on netflix so okay, I, um, okay. yeah i mean all the the early seasons were actually better <laughs> this is just really weird um okay. so i don't know <laughs> and and by better i mean like better if you're like a teenager i don't know okay. like i really shouldn't be liking this at all <laughs> it's 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 uh, probably not age appropriate um but i like it it's you know it's a good show yeah, um, hey, you can like it unapologetically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's my recommendation for the week. Um, okay. But Jessica, I wanted to thank you for being on and just being open with us. You know, that's a your story is is winding. It's got a lot of ups and downs, and um, but I think you know at the crux of it, it's like your your message is you got to heal that inner part of you to make any sort of 
improvements in your life or, you know, heal actual medical issues that you're, you're challenged with. And I think that message resonates with just about anybody um, right now, because I know that so many of us are walking around with like unhealed stuff inside. So yeah, yeah. Um, I appreciate your openness. And for all the listeners, if you can go and like or rate or subscribe to the podcast, that would be super helpful because I know that helps. And we will be back here next week. All right. Thanks. And it, yeah, go, thank go you. Yeah. I was gonna say find me at selfcraftedking.com. Think of a think of you being a king wearing a crown. Selfcraftedking.com. And on my front page, you'll see where it says, Don't follow us on addictive social media. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Great. Well, I, again, I appreciate it. And we'll be back here next week.